Super Talk Mississippi media production. State Treasurer David McRae is returning record amounts of money to Mississippians, whether it's through the College and Career Savings Program or the millions in unclaimed money awaiting your claim. Treasurer David McRae says get your application and claims today. Treasury.ms.gov. Howdy, howdy. It's Rhino here, and I wanted to say thank you for listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. everyone and welcome to Midday Super Talk Mississippi. I'm your host Gerard Gibbert along with Will East filling in for the vacationing rhino in the Element Well Studios guiding you through the middle of your day with facts, fodder, and fine music on this as Rhino would say Friday Eve and it is a bit stormy outside. Right a bit now. stormy, a little warm, or it's supposed to be warm uh, today. I talked to somebody from Connecticut yesterday. They said uh, they can't walk outside their house because of all the snow. And I said, well, it's 80 degrees here. So kind of tells you the difference in the United States right now. I read where Man. somewhere in Texas, was it Texas, that had record snowfall? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Sure did. California, too. California. I've seen uh, there's a camera that's positioned near uh, an eagle's nest. Yeah. You see that? And and so the eagles are trying to figure out how to keep their, their eggs warm <laughs> because they've gotten uh, rather unusual snowfall in the area. And you can see it all over in the background. And the nest is they cleaned out a little area of snow there for the eggs to rest. It's weird. Everybody's confused. But here in... Uh, good old Mississippi, it's hot, muggy, stormy, yeah. Yeah. all that kind of fun stuff. Uh, I believe the more severe weather is scheduled to come into the area around midnight, correct? Crossing yeah. the river. Yeah. This is just a prelude. I hate those night storms like that. I do, too. Uh, but sweeping through across the state and out of here sometime tomorrow morning mm-hmm. is uh, the forecast I heard Kelly Bennett talking about that on our news clip uh, between the hours. So that's where we are in Mississippi. I just know coming in, I left the house. It was raining pretty good as I headed south here to Jackson. Yeah, it uh, it started to dissipate a bit, but as I was coming in the building, it was picking up some steam, as the, they would say. The one good thing about all the rain, though, is of course that it washes the pollen off of your car. Wow. Much needed, and hopefully it'll wash it out of my throat. To still struggling with that a I bit, that. but a lot better than it was earlier in the week, for sure. Uh, most grateful for that. Riley Gaines, All-American champion swimmer, on the program in the next segment at 10.20, going to talk about the need for a women's bill of rights to protect female athletes. It's an incredibly interesting story, isn't it? Very much so, and it's it's another one of those things, Well, I've discussed it so many times on the program, 
where the states are just going in opposite directions. There are a number of issues now that clearly are separating the states. Abortion, obviously one of those. Taxation, from an education curriculum perspective. CRT and gender ideology. Uh, now, various states are pursuing legislation, as Mississippi has, which would prohibit transgender surgery and treatment, hormonal treatment, drug treatment, etc., for minors. Gender reassignment surgery, which is presently not occurring in Mississippi, but this you could say this is more of a preemptive yeah. measure. So you got, and then you got other states that are embracing it, making it more accessible, funding it, inviting yeah. it, encouraging it. So again, just going in different direction. Voting rights is another one. That just a number of critical key issues where the states clearly depart. And you saw Marjorie Taylor Greene, the representative from the great state of Georgia not so long ago, calling for a national divorce, divorcing the red states from the blue states. Now, that has been met with quite a bit of resistance, shall we say. I'm not on board with that concept, but I, but I think it just goes to show what we're talking about here, which is just how far apart the states are on so many issues, particularly cultural issues. Yeah, and you know, a lot of it boils down, Gerard, as you know, probably better than anybody, uh, to the state legislatures and how they have, over the past, I'd say, decade, gotten a little bit more radicalized left and right. Uh, you know, there was... There was a time that you and I can remember where it didn't matter what letter was beside your name, D or R, you, you kind of knew where everybody stood, and yeah. they kind of stood for the same thing in principle, uh, and that has changed. Um, you have people that are you know gung-ho, we got to do what we believe, and they they a lot of it's the primary system, you, there's a lot of blame there, but I think the, the state legislature is kind of getting more deeper red, deeper blue is causing a lot of this. It seems like it. Uh, as an example, in Oregon, they are considering a bill, Senate Bill 603 is the Oregonian legislature, that if passed would introduce the first statewide basic universal income pilot by giving $1,000 a month to people who are homeless or who have a low income. Yeah. Now, you already have in San Francisco, we talked about this on the show, they uh, enacted a guaranteed income program for the transgender community. Mm -hmm. The crazy one of all time, I think, is the state of New York. They created about eight months ago a guaranteed universal basic income program, $1,000 a month, to artists. No idea why. What's that all about? I have no idea. And honestly, I think... Well, the crazy, But the craziest one to me is San Francisco. Have you seen that one? Other than the trans? No. Uh, reparations. Oh, yeah. The $5 million $5 of reparations. $5 million of reparations. And, and then uh, is that per person? I mean, how does it? Work? Uh, yeah, it, there's some 
strings attached, some qualification, some criteria, but it doesn't seem to be too too terribly difficult to achieve. I don't know. And then there's and then there's a, another one that would provide not only just the five million one time. I think that's a statewide uh, effort, by the way, not just San Francisco. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, and then the other one is $233,000 for life for the same group of recipients from California. Now, they're generating a $20 billion deficit, but yet they're going to dole out this money. It's insane. Wow. I honestly believe this is in response to the inability of Democrats in Washington to get through something they really want to push, and that's the child tax credit. We talked about it so many times on the program. One was instituted uh, on a temporary basis in the American Rescue Plan. It was increased way beyond the existing child tax credit the IRS provides, and that expired. And this is just in response to that. Well, those Republicans are obstructing us from getting this permanent child tax refundable, meaning even if you don't owe any taxes, you don't make enough to pay any taxes, you file a tax return, you have a child, a qualifying child, boom, we're sending you money. I mean, it's just a blatant form of redistribution, perhaps more so than any other program. And I think this is in response to that. I think they're saying to the Republicans, well, you're in the way. We'll just enact all this stuff at the state and local level that's somewhat equivalent. Mm -hmm. So here we're talking about trying to get through meaningful tax reform, tax reduction reform in, in the form of elimination of the income tax. And in these states, they're giving more money away just for the asking I read also this morning the state of Massachusetts overwhelmingly last fall passed a millionaire's tax, all income above a million taxed at 13% in the Bay State. Just think about the difference. Zero in Florida and Texas, you make a million in Massachusetts, you're paying 13% of all income over a million. On top of your federal. Yeah. Which is thirty nine percent. So you got roughly. You got the money taxation. That's a big difference between the states. Yep. This uh, transgender, which we're going to talk about here in a little bit. Yep. This uh, issue, which is such a small minority of people. Right. I mean, it's it's amazing, but the the left is just really going all out for this. Well, and there was a detransitioner who testified to the Nebraska Congress yesterday, I think the Senate Congress, the legislature, the Senate, and a state senator said, oh, that's not happening in Nebraska. And this transition person said, pulled her shirt up, said, look here, coming right back on Middays, Riley Gaines joining us. Stay with us. With Gerard Gibbert. Let's do this. Right. On Super Talk, Mississippi. Let's go. 
Tom's in the chair because it's a hefty dose of Tom Petty. You're a big Tom Petty fan. I love it. My first concert. <laughs> we are back in the Element Well Studios with Riley Gaines, All-American champion swimmer. Riley, thanks for coming in on Middays. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. Tell us why you're in Mississippi. Well, I am here today. Um, I'm actually speaking at an event, an event in regards to the Women's Bill of Rights. It sounds so incredibly silly when you say it out loud, but this is essentially a bill that defines what it is to be a woman, which is sad that that is necessary in legislature today. I agree with you. The, the sort of things that uh, the subject matter that we're even taking up in America's uh, governing bodies is just stunning to me that we're having all this discussion and deliberation about things that are fairly fundamental, such as gender, and we're having to define this and enact legislation to prevent a mutilation of minor bodies and so forth. This just blows me away that we even have to have this discussion about who competes against whom in athletic competition. Have you experienced any sort of competition against biological males? I have. Um, I actually graduated from the University of Kentucky last year where I was on the swim team. Um, in my senior year, I competed against Leah Thomas. Of course, Leah Thomas was formerly Will Thomas and swam three years on the men's side at UPenn. And so, upon competing against each other in the 200-yard freestyle, which resulted in a tie, um, the NCAA, NCAA official looked at me and Thomas after our tie and said, great job. Um, we only have one trophy, so this goes to Leah. Um, Riley, you go home empty-handed. And so I question this official naturally, and I say, okay, I understand there's one trophy. We went the exact same time down to the hundredth of a second. But why are you adamant on giving this trophy to a six-foot-four biological man at a woman's meet? And he said, well, Leah has to have the, the trophy for photo purposes. And so, of course, I knew what was happening was wrong in regards to the unfair competition, in regards to being forced to change next to a fully exposed and fully intact male. I knew that was wrong. But when he reduced what I had worked my whole life to accomplish down to a photo op to affirm the identity of a male, that's when I truthfully had had enough, and that's when I, was, I realized I was done waiting for someone else to speak out about it. It's awfully brave on your part uh, to come forward and speak up about this. The story that you just shared, I had not heard that there was some feeling of the officials being compelled to award this to this male who's competing in a female event for a photo op. Yes, exactly. And I think it's worth mentioning that this was a male who the year prior was ranked 462nd at best in the men's category to a year later winning a national title, beating out Olympians, American record holders, the most impressive female athletes of all time. It makes certainly one at least consider was there some motivation on the part of Thomas to compete against females knowing they could not really functionally, effectively compete against their own gender, males? Right. Let me compete against females, I can win and take home these trophies. Right. And let's say even if that 
wasn't necessarily Thomas's motives. It opens a door for people who would wholeheartedly sure. take advantage of that opportunity, and that's exactly what we're seeing. Um, we're seeing an infiltration of men in women's sports and not vice versa. Um, there aren't trans men competing with men because these trans men can't compete with the men. Right. That would be a biological female who has transitioned right. to a, what they call a male. Exactly. Um, Identify more than anything else, I guess. Exactly. And I, actually, it's worth noting that at this same meet where we had Leah Thomas, who is, of course, male to female, yeah. we had another transgender athlete who was female to male, who swam only in a Speedo as a biological female, went by he, him, um, identified as Isaac, but was competing with the women. So we had both types of transitioning athletes at the same meet competing with women, which proves the women's category is at jeopardy, not the men's category. How far did you take your concern with respect to the NCAA? <laughs> Pretty far, um, especially at the meet. We were not forewarned that we would be sharing a changing space with Leah Thomas, who right. again was fully intact with male genitalia. And so, when Leah Thomas, six foot four, is towering over everyone else in the locker room and is fully exposed, I immediately left and I went to an NCAA official and I said, "Hey." what are the guidelines that allowed this to happen? And he said, well, we created the locker rooms under a unisex basis. So this meant that any man could have walked into our locker room, not just a self-identifying female who is a male. Um, and they didn't forewarn us. And so from there, after the meet, I sent numerous letters, numerous emails, handwritten letters to which I got no response. And so I think I read them. <laughs> yes, and so actually I was nominated for NCAA Woman of the Year, which is the most prestigious award for collegiate female athletes. It's an award that encompasses your, of course, your athletic achievements, but also your academic success and your service and your leadership. And so when I found out I was nominated, I was so excited. But then they released a full list of nominees. And of course, this, this award was not strictly limited to, to women. They nominated Leah Thomas. And so I went to the NCAA convention where they announced Woman of the Year, um, but I was not there in support of that award because that award meant nothing to me at that point. Um, and so I garnered a petition with nearly 10,000 signatures and handed it directly to the NCAA, as well as presenting them with a legal demand letter um, that told them there will be legal action if they don't stop discriminating on the basis of sex. Wow. And that truly is, at its core, what it is. It's discrimination. Absolutely. Which, of course, is what Title IX, right. the federal law that is supposed to stop discrimination on the basis of sex at um, college campuses and universities, that's what that was created to protect. But where now are we the feminists? Exactly. Um, I can tell you where they are. We have people like Billie Jean King, right. who was a trailblazer no doubt. for women's sports. No doubt. She's advocating for trans inclusion in, in women's sports. And Megan Rapinoe, right. who was, again, Obviously not my taste, but she was a trailblazer for women's sports, fighting for equal pay and equal access and equal resources. She's now advocating for trans inclusion in women's sports, and I think it's worth mentioning that neither one of these women have children, and they're both done competing. So they have nothing at stake, and so they would rather be perceived as inclusive and kind when they don't have anything to risk. I remember uh, reading an account, uh, Riley, from uh, Chris Everett, obviously champion uh, tennis player, female saying that when she was in her prime as a female tennis player, she couldn't beat her 16-year-old brother. No. 
No. I mean, it's, it's it's not a knock on her. She was a world-class tennis right. player against females, but we're just biologically different. Same thing with Venus and Serena. They right. lost in a match to the 203rd ranked male. And not just lost, it was a blowout. 6-1, to 6-2, to something like that. Um, and they're not, they're not even just the best tennis players. They're phenoms. They're right. incredible. Right. What they accomplish is, is unworldly. And they lost to not even someone inside the, the top 200 of male tennis players. Unbelievable. And that's at the top of their game. I mean, they're, anyone that competes at that level, as you well know, Riley, they're, they're freaks of nature in a positive way. God Absolutely. has blessed them with certain physical talents that uh, just exceed those of the average population. That's why they're there. That's why people pay to go watch them. Absolutely. That's exactly <laughs> what we're seeing. And when we see these mediocre men, which in my case, Leah Thomas, that's exactly what this was. A D1 swimmer, so right. I mean, he's a good swimmer, clearly. Sure. But a mediocre male, at best, come in and beat out Olympians, female athletes who have dedicated their entire lives making sacrifices, both physical, um, mental, social sacrifices to compete at that level. They're getting beat by mediocre men. What do we need from a legislative perspective? What are you, what are you uh, essentially promoting and lobbying for? I think it's crucial that we pass as many fairness and women's sports bills at the state level as possible. Um, Mississippi is ahead of the curve, which is phenomenal. I believe there's about 18 to 20-ish states that have passed this, Mississippi being one. So that's fantastic. Um, that would protect sports um, Mostly K through 12, right. taking on the collegiate level would be awesome as well. Um, at the federal level, um, the Stubbe bill was just filed, which would essentially uphold Title IX for what Title IX was meant to be. Um, we have the Biden administration who is actively working to rewrite Title IX to now equate gender identity to sex, which this would translate far beyond sports. This would mean that men could live in a dorm room with women, men could join sororities. Um, it would actually be sexual harassment for me to misgender someone like Leah Thomas and call Leah Thomas a he, but it's not sexual harassment under the new Title IX for Leah Thomas, again, a male with male parts, to be undressing and exposing himself in our locker room. Disastrous. So you're aware that the governor of Mississippi just uh, passed, signed legislation that would prohibit uh, gender reassignment surgery for minors. Right. Before we go, what do you think about that? You know, I think it's I think it's great that there's someone who's willing to take a stand um, on this issue because there are so many people now who don't want to get involved because it's so controversial. Um, but for Tate Reeves to be willing to do that, I think it's phenomenal and it shows his leadership. And our legislature as well should, should be commended and many other people had a hand in that. But thank you for coming on. And really appreciate and admire your courage on this. Thank you, Rob. Absolutely. Thank you. Coming right back with more here from the Element Well Studios. Stay with us. FM. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. It is on. On Super Talk Mississippi. Yeah, it really is crazy to me that we're even having this discussion in this country that. I, and I keep going back to when I first started doing the show 
uh, Will, and I just made an observation that a lot of people in the country say, gosh, can't we just get the parties together and work together to do good for the American people, both at the federal and the state level? It's a, I think that's a fairly common yeah. refrain you hear. And I, I always go back to this, which is, geez, if we can't if we can't agree on how many biological genders there are, or sexes there are, or how, just whatever. The most basic right. thing you we would think, right? We can't agree on that. I say we got no chance of agreeing on too much more. Not really. And right before we went to break, I was talking about this um, situation in Nebraska. I mean, that would j- just blew me away. So it's a detransitioner. <laughs> Her name is Luca Hine, H-E-I-N. And she was born? She was born as a female, biological female. Okay. okay. She transitioned to a male. All right. And now is going through detransitioning. I didn't even know there was such a thing. I can't keep up with it, all this stuff anymore. So there is a state senator... Megan Hunt, her name, and on the floor of the state legislature yesterday said that transgender surgery, quote, never happens, end quote, in Nebraska. And this uh, person, Luca Hine, who is a biological female, transitioned to a male and now detransitioning to return to being a female actually had the transitioning surgery at the age of 16 in the state of Nebraska. So, Ms. Hine tweets, quote, Hey, Nebraska Megan, which is the handle for Senator Megan Hunt who said it doesn't happen. No transitioning surgery occurs in Nebraska. Hey, Nebraska Megan, I want you to come say it to my face that this isn't happening in Nebraska. Look me in the eyes and tell me this didn't happen. I was 16, and then it's a bunch of hashtags, D-Trans, Trans, Nebraska Legislature, Nebraska, and I'm looking at the tweet here, Will. It's a tweet posted by Luca Hine. And in the tweet, she is raising her blouse above where her breasts are on her chest, exposing her bare, naked body. And you can clearly see the scars from the surgery around where breasts are on a female body, and you can see it's flat because she had a double mastectomy, what in the parlance of the transitioning world they refer to as uppers, by the way. So at the age of 16. 16, and said, I had this in Nebraska, and this state senator saying it doesn't happen here. Basically, the state senator is saying is is speaking out against what Mississippi just did that Nebraska is considering, which is the prohibition 
of gender reassignment surgery, puberty blockers, other forms of medical treatment, uh, to minors to achieve a transition. She says, uh, does Senator Hunt, I want to be totally clear here. Every youth deserves the information, autonomy, and family support they need to thrive. We are talking about deeply personal situations, and I'm not here to disregard or disrespect anyone who has detransitioned. I can't even keep up with it. It's crazy. Um, I, I, I got to tell you about this one. This so celebrities are being caught in the middle of this, obviously, and yeah. you know, as you would imagine, a lot of celebrities are pro, you know, transitioning and all this kind of stuff. But one of them that is not is J.K. Rowling, who is the writer of the Harry Potter series, mm-hmm. and has recently received a huge backlash because she has said. Mm-hmm. That she doesn't, you know, men are men and women are women, and you know, especially at a certain age, they should not be transitioning and all this kind of stuff. And Harry Potter fans who are against that have just come out in incredible backlash. And recently, there was a video game released uh, about the Harry Potter series, and it's had this, you know, negative backlash because of her statements on transgender stuff. And uh, recently, somebody tweeted out. Uh, Harry Potter was my childhood. I loved it so much, I tattooed a sleeve of my whole arm around 2012. I, I'm honestly embarrassed now uh, by J.K. Rowling. Um, and somebody responded, so you're saying that you regret a decision that you made to permanently alter your body when you were younger. Duh. It's, it's, un- not, it's, it's not the transition. That's what I think... A, the riff is, is it's not that you can go transition all you want to, back and forth and whatnot, at a certain age. Right, exactly. You're an adult, you want to cut your body up like that, I don't got a problem with that. When you're a child, I, I just believe that we as a society need to protect children who are vulnerable, and unfortunately, parents are supporting this these moves, these transitions. And I think... Maybe sometimes the parents are fearful when doctors tell them, hey, if we don't do this, your child's going to die. They're going to commit suicide or harm themselves, something to, to that effect. I, I don't know. It's hard for me to comprehend it, honestly. I, I struggle with it. And what, by the way, what Riley said after the interview about this Leah Thomas, and I also had a text from a friend asking, did uh, Thomas have the surgery, or does uh, Thomas still have male parts? So Riley shared that Thomas, when competing against her, had not engaged in any, uh, had not uh, had any, I should say, gender reassignment surgery, but was taking suppressants to suppress the testosterone level, okay, since competing has, in fact, had the surgery, okay, and, and I don't keep up with Leah Thomas, but obviously Riley does. Riley informed me that 
Thomas, this is crazy now, folks. Try to try to get <laughs> wrap your heads around this. Thomas is dating another person who transitioned. But the person transitioned, as Thomas did, from a biological male to a transitioned female. And they're dating as transitioned lesbians. Try to get your head around that one. It is a... And Thomas apparently promotes this relationship and shares their life story. And I, it, it hurts my head thinking about it, honestly, that it's gotten that crazy. And I'm, I just wonder, is mutilating the human body of such people, is that the proper, appropriate treatment? Or maybe there's something else going on here. I'm just I'm not sure. And then I wonder, is this just all for attention? Because let's face it, this person got a lot of attention. That's probably some of it. Well, Rhino likes to say it's the dopamine effect of social media. I think a lot of that's true. Yeah. So you you can't and by the way, I asked Riley before she left. It was my understanding that the NCAA did have some sort of testing, testosterone testing, that one had to submit to, to qualify if they're a biological male to compete as a female, such as Leah Thomas. Well, she told me there was no testing done. That as long as you can prove you're, you're on suppressants, you're good to go. And I thought I remember somewhere, Will, that the NCAA had adopted the IOC rules on this matter, mm-hmm. which does test testosterone levels. Riley said, yeah, they did, but apparently they sort of loosely adhere to it. Oh. And also said, uh, Riley informed me that that test allows up to 10x a level of testosterone relative to the average female. So it's pretty generous, yeah. pretty liberal that, in the testing standard. That story about the pitcher. Oh, it's crazy. When the NCAA official says, i got to take the pitcher up. That's nuts. That's just I mean, maddening. It's infuriating that we're, once again, the march to mediocrity is what that is. Coming right back on Middays, we got Representative Jansen Owen at 12.05 today. Please stick around. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Keep rolling. Three, two, one. On Super Talk, Mississippi. As I was walking down the street one day, a man came up to me and asked me what the time was that was on my watch. Yeah, I said. Speaking of Chicago on the ceasefire text line, which by the way is 601-879-4395, Darren in Jackson says, I'm just upset that the greatest mayor Chicago has ever had was defeated in the primary. Lori Lightfoot. She gone, and I like what the two 
candidates who did advance to the runoff had to say about Chicago and their plans to really clean the city up and restore its once greatness. But Lori Lightfoot, of course, already says it's because of her race and her gender. She said that at her concession speech where she got 17% of the vote, I believe. Unbelievable. So once again... So they weren't racist and sexist before, but now they are. In 19, when she got elected. where I looked it up. She, like, carried every ward or however they divide the city up. She, She carried every one of them. Yeah. Yeah, I guess they just became racist and <laughs> well, somebody said homophobic, uh, misogynist. Sense said m- most of her uh, voting block must have either moved or uh, <laughs> moved to the cemetery because of all the murders that are going uh, on. Wow, it's that goes right at the heart. I mean, the murder rate is, I believe, the highest in twenty years yes. in Chicago. It's there go weekends where they'll have fifty people shot. Yep. And, of course, she blames gun violence, uh, the, the guns themselves, not the criminals that are doing it. Yep. Uh, on the ceasefire text line, Argo in Blue Springs says, the whole state of Mississippi has your back on this one, referring, I think, to Miss Gaines in her pursuit of some legislation. And you know what? I think that it hasn't quite – it's not quite at the moment where it's hitting your local community yet, but I think – that time will happen, especially in bluer states where this is allowed. I think that's going to start happening. Yeah, you're going to start seeing more and more sporting competitions is the 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 one, but you know beauty pageants, you know stuff like that. It's it it's going to happen eventually, no doubt. Uh, and so this is a preemptive move, and yeah. I think appropriate, pretty simple. And that's what a lot of the left are saying. Well, there's there's not happening. It's a, you know why why are you passing this law when it's not? A, well, it's a preemptive move. Yeah, it it makes total sense. So it's crazy that you have to act on a matter like this, in my view, that this is even going on. And it's – I do think that Joe Biden getting elected and immediately adopting an approach to government and certainly to uh, nominating to to various posts in the government, naming his cabinet, et cetera – it's clear that gender ideology, certainly race, was uh, was a central theme in his decision making. There's no doubt about that. And it's trickling so, down to all. Yeah, he's emboldening everybody. The military, obviously, that's it's crazy. It's it's insane. Agree. It's it's totally crazy. So appreciate that, uh, Argo. Ray in Long Beach says, need to ask the NCAA if they would want Leah Thomas using changing in their daughter-granddaughter's bath locker room. I, I think that's a fair question, Ray. Did you hear about the store owner in Columbus that got arrested trying to protect their pop property? We did. I did hear about that. I heard about that story. I saw some, uh, some news reports on that, but I haven't dug into it, to be perfectly honest. Uh, on the ceasefire text line. We'll see what we can do. We did just learn that the Mississippi IHL, that would be the Institutes of Higher Learning, uh, the board, there is a board, has called a special meeting to discuss personnel at Jackson State University, which, of course, is one of the universities under the purview of the IHL and the IHL board. This comes on the heels of the JSU Faculty Senate 
holding a vote on January the 27th, expressing no confidence in President Thomas Hudson. Now, President Hudson has been embattled in some controversy, correct, Will, of late? Yeah, and I, a lot of it stems, honestly, from Deion Sanders, and I guess that they didn't agree on everything, and I, I don't know, I, there's, I don't see a, um, a root cause for all this consternation from the um, Jackson State Senate, but I just I don't understand it because Deion Sanders isn't there anymore. Right, so right. why are you worried if he disagreed with him or not? I, I don't know. Uh, but we just learned that it's not going to work trying to reason with liberals, says CC in Senatobia, because liberals do not want what is best for Americans. They want what is best for liberals in the LGBTQ. That's it. I hear what you're saying, CC. What bothers me further, and I want I would encourage people to think about this. And I'm not lecturing here. Just think about this. They do believe in their heart this is best for America. That's the fundamental problem. The same as I said earlier, we can't agree on just fundamentally what's good, what's bad, what's right, what's wrong, what's past, what's fail, what's win, what's what's lose. We can't agree on it anymore. Coming right back, we're in the Element Well Studios, Super Talk News, Fox News, coming your way. And then at 12.05, it's Representative Jansen Owens. Stay with us. Get ready. Get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Here on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Midday Super Talk Mississippi, hour two of the program live from the Element Wealth Studios. Go to myelementwealth.com or call 601-957-6006 to let Element Wealth help you find your balance between income, growth, and guarantees. Also, today on In a Mississippi Minute with Steve Azar, you'll hear an interview with hit singer-songwriter, and Mississippi native Jeff Bates. You'll hear about his journey from being found as an abandoned infant all the way to his music career where he topped the Billboard charts until his fall into drug addiction and his current road to sobriety. In a Mississippi Minute with Steve Azar is presented by VisitMississippi.org. You can hear the show each Thursday and Friday, 1 to 2 p.m. on most Super Talk Mississippi stations, supertalk.fm and available everywhere you listen to podcasts. It's an incre- I listened to it yesterday putting it together. It's an incredible story. He was found one of these stories he was literally found on a doorstep as an infant with cigarette burns. Wow. Uh in I believe Marion County, Mississippi. Uh I can't remember the exact name of the town. And then became this huge uh in the I think late '90s, early 2000s, chart success in the country music charts, and then meth addiction and just terrible all alcoholism, all this terrible stuff, and now he's 
He's on the road to recovery. So it's a pretty incredible story. This is part, actually part one of an interview. Part two will air tomorrow. Gotcha. Uh, so just incredible. Steve does a great job uh, with those interviews of, of artists like this, especially. Yeah, and th- this is such a, a crazy story. I mean, you can't get much lower to much higher and then much lower again and then, you know, back up the, the ladder. Yeah. You, you love to see that, you know, when, when people are knocked down like that and they pull themselves up by the bootstraps and and become uh, productive, successful. Love to see those stories. It, yeah. I think it just is a tribute to how great this country is, honestly, and, and the opportunities that avail themselves. It's just a matter of sticking with it. And uh, certainly that was the case uh, with uh, Mr. Bates, Jeff Bates. Mm-hmm. So. We just learned that uh, the bill that I have described as the worst piece of legislation ever (laughs) to see the halls of the Capitol, that would be HB 401. That's the one that restricts the sale of new motor vehicles in Mississippi to an independently owned and operated dealership located within the borders of the state. It would prohibit the sale of a new vehicle directly by a manufacturer to a citizen in Mississippi, a resident of Mississippi, essentially bypassing a dealer. It would also prohibit the sale of new vehicles through a dealer owned and operated a dealership by the manufacturer. And I believe, as I have said before, that this is really just brazen interference. Protectionism? Yeah, that's certainly one way to describe it, but interference in market forces, in market dynamics, that consumers and sellers can work that out on their own. Yeah. That's the way that ought to work. I believe that this is a sign of the disruption in society. This is not anything new. It's just now coming to fruition in this industry. So for those not familiar, who, if you haven't heard about this, uh, it essentially kind of protects – essentially says you have to buy a vehicle through a franchise. Yeah, right. an independently owned and operated dealership that would be a franchise, a partner, a, a a reseller, if you will, of a manufacturer's products. So the typical GM, Ford, Nissan, Toyota dealers you see out and about uh, uh, on the landscape of the state, these are independently owned. Now, sometimes they're owned by conglomerates, large corporate entities that own several dealerships in several states. And in fact, the last few years, uh, there's been a lot of consolidation in the industry. And that's that's kind of a natural evolution uh, in, it, in an industry that, that operates under that two-tiered model, two-tiered yeah. being you've got a manufacturer and then you've got a retailer. And the manufacturers through the years, not just in automobiles, but uh, a number of other industries as well, have said, you know, it's really not worth our while to just deal with a single operator with such a low volume. It's We have a lot of the same fixed costs associated with that relationship as we do in dealing with a very large volume operator with multiple dealerships. I watch this happen in my industry. It's frankly, well, precisely why 
I went to raise money to go acquire companies because I could see the writing on the wall. It wasn't only the manufacturers. In my case, the technology partners that we dealt with, in the case of our industry, it was the customers. The big customers were saying, ah, you're too small. We only want to deal with big partners. Mm-hmm. And I'd say, well, are you saying that we don't have the financial wherewithal to handle your business? We don't have the technical capabilities? We don't have the, the resources? No, you're just not big enough. And they never really could answer that you know, explicitly. But I could see, oh, yeah, this is, this is going to push out and make it very difficult. And so the other thing that was happening in my industry is different than the car industry, which is one vehicle, one person, or one family, or, or a, a small number of people who are going to operate that. What was happening in, in my industry was that the solutions that we were, we were marketing only really were appropriate for very large enterprises. And the large enterprises were saying, you're too small. So the choice was, I could just tell them they're crazy, in which case I'm going to go broke, or I could try to get bigger. And in fact, I went and so, so, so and the point I'm trying to make there is that it's about your, about your value proposition. If you're an independently owned dealer selling vehicles, you better have a value proposition to attract buyers other than, well, the government says you got to buy it from me. That's not a value proposition. That's your protectionism. Yeah, That's what's called the route to market, and that's government telling consumers, you don't know how to buy cars. We're going to have to tell you how to do that, and we're going to protect you in that process, and we're going to protect these dealers yeah. as well. I've heard so many say, well, you know, they sponsor ball teams. That's how we make laws? Based on who sponsors ball teams? I've heard that, literally, from legislators in the state say that. Yeah. You know, my my position is if a dealership's doing its job, it, it creates Should be the fine. value. Sure. Exactly. I mean, I go to my dealer for, um, for service right now under warranty. Sure. You know, they take care of all that stuff. You don't have to worry about it. I got a problem, I call them. And they do a, a dang good job of it. Well, I wouldn't think shop anywhere else. I right totally now. agree, and I and I share. But they're your doing sentiment. their job. I'm sure there's some that, that aren't, obviously, but most of them are. But the market can make that decision, exactly. not government. It's I, I'm not anti-dealers. In fact, I'm pro-dealers. I I've bought numerous cars for my family from a dealership in Mississippi, numerous through the years. Very happy with the service. Not thinking about changing, even if I could buy it direct. Not going to do it. I like that relationship. I like that experience. I value their service. They're going to be fine. And to be honest with you, I believe most Mississippians feel the same well, of way. Course. I believe they do because, too. unlike a, a a phone or some other product out there, a car is something that you like to drive before you buy it. It's a big financial investment. Right? It's a lot of money usually, especially if it's a new vehicle, and this deals only with new vehicles, right? It is. And, you yeah. know, we used to say in our industry that you, that customers want a throat to choke when it don't work. Mm-hmm. Right? And so... Somebody I can call and say, right. hey, Bill, this ain't working, or something's not right. Can you fix it? Right. Yes, I can. And people are willing. And, and i got to tell you, when I first went to Wall Street in 2008 to raise money, for my, my strategy, my plan, my consolidation plan. Wall Street said, 
oh no, you're going to get pushed out. They're, you're going to get bypassed. And I couldn't make them understand, no, in fact, this stuff's getting so complicated, they need us more than ever, they being the market, the customers. Even the large fortune company enterprises still need what we do. And, and they know, dismissed this, it. it. This applies perfectly to vehicles because guess what? They're getting more complicated every single That's day. That's true. And you want to throw it to choke. So sell that. Sell your value. Not, well, I sponsor ball teams and the government says you got to do it with me. That's not a value proposition. Every company, every organization, every seller of goods and services needs a value proposition. That's how the market works. So not to be protected by government. Your value proposition will overcome any kind of market objections. You will thrive, in fact. Coming right back on Middays in the Element Well Studios. Stay with us. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. What? What? This is so awesome. On Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Midday Super Talk Mississippi, live from the Element Wealth Studios. We got some Doobie Brother tickets to give away later on in the program. Representative Jansen Owen. He represents Lamar and Pearl River counties. Will be in the Element Well Studios in about 45 minutes at 12.05 today. Gene in Mendenhall says, Law is as dumb as not being able to order alcohol through the web. <laughs> and That's another one. It, so the, the difference, however, that we should point out is that the state, right or wrong, has been in the alcohol distribution business for quite some time. And it generates the distribution function, generates a fair amount of revenue for the state. Last time I looked, it was about 90 million bucks. So the, the challenge is, how do we strip the state out of that business and still have either the revenue or cut spending, perhaps, to counter the loss of that revenue. How do we do that? And this has been discussed, deliberated extensively. I even testified, I think it was two years ago, just to inform a joint committee of the legislature um, that would be interested in this area, finance mainly. Uh, ways and means of finance, ways and means house. And, and so I just testified to explain how the lottery structure is established and set up and, to, and for them to possibly consider setting up alcohol distribution uh, in a similar way. And, and a number of other folks also testified with ideas to think about it, all the way from contracting with a third party just to, just to perform that function, the, the alcohol distribution management function, and pay them a fee to do so, and then you'd have revenue. So you'd have to figure out, you know, the economics and the math of all that, obviously, if you transition to that model. That's one option. 
it's it's complicated. And, and well, this is another one of those situations where these were decisions made a long time ago in the state. Now they're entrenched. Yeah. And 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 they're hard to to change. PERS. Uh, exemption of income for retirees is it, it is a problem when you look at eliminating the income tax because the retired folks in our state say, well, what about us? Uh, valid question, valid concern. Um, and then you've got other tax exemptions when you start thinking about tinkering with sales taxes. You've got Manufactured housing that gets an exemption, automobiles that get an exemption, farm implements and equipment that are exempt or certainly pay a reduced rate. Mm-hmm. Uh, energy consumption in the agricultural community is, is uh, subject to, not subject to sales tax, whereas for other commercial entities it is. There are numerous other examples where groups, uh, let's say, have uh, effectively and successfully kind of doctored up the tax code. And it's um, it's rather Byzantine, is <laughs> the way I would describe it. And I'm not taking a stand for or against any of that. I'm just saying it introduces lots of complexities into the process of changing. Because mm-hmm. everybody's going to say, well, that affects us this way, that affects us that way, this, that, and the other. It's the grocery tax, which we had Representative Becky Curry on the program two days ago say, yeah, if we had a bill to zero out sales tax, make groceries exempt from sales tax, I believe that would pass this afternoon. Wow. I believe I'm repeating her words there accurately. I know there's some folks that listened to the interview recall that. Well, the issue there, a couple issues, if you do that, that makes it extremely difficult to eliminate the income tax, which is a high priority for many in the House, certainly our leaders, and many in the Senate as well. And our governor made it very clear where he stands on that. Well, when you take that revenue out and you eliminate the income tax, it's just more, it's more difficult to make the ends meet from a budgetary perspective. Because while the coffers are full right now, they won't always be. That's right. And you don't want to keep relying on your savings to make ends meet. That that's not sustainable. That's what the dead gum PERS is doing and Social Security are doing right now. That doesn't work. Um, so the, all of those entrenched laws make it difficult to make changes. The other issue with eliminating the grocery tax is is that that is a a huge source of revenue to many small communities, municipalities in our state. I've heard mayors say, gosh, if you got rid of the grocery tax, we're done. We we wouldn't have any revenue. Okay, state, you're going to have to make up for that. So then we start dealing with changing the sales tax diversion. And some people would like that. Some people wouldn't. I'm simply pointing out it's a more complex undertaking than just say, oh, yeah, sign here, get rid of this, that, and the other. It's, there, there are a lot of nuance um, matters involved that have to also be addressed and taken up. Some support, some don't. Don't know where that would land uh, in the form of a vote. 
And then you start looking at a citizen ballot measure that might take that up. And then there, how should that work? You know, as far as making sure that the citizens don't offer a measure that would strip revenue to the point that we couldn't operate. And as I recall, the bill last year that Representative Shanks discussed on the program, because it flows through his committee, it did have some safeguards in there to protect against that. If you know if the citizens put a measure on the ballot that said, get rid of all taxes, well, that wouldn't pass muster. Obviously, that wouldn't be tenable or practical or realistic. So uh, that's got to be considered. But we'll find out what's going to happen with this vehicle bill. I'm curious to know. I don't have any other updates other than that. We were informed here at the Super Talk Studios by another member of the staff that the bill was mm-hmm. being deliberated in the Senate. It's been sitting there for a while. It passed the House. Yeah. So it's been on the calendar and it keeps getting pushed back, which tells you that maybe there's some concern. It's amazing when you use uh, an example with that bill when you substitute vehicle for like a phone or a TV or something like that. How people what that's crazy. Yeah, I know. Things that we're accustomed to now you know, I, I can speak from my personal experience in the early days. You wouldn't consider buying a PC if you didn't buy it through a dealer like us because there was a lot of work to do yeah. that required some technical intellect just to get a personal computer to the point you could use it. Now, and I knew even when we started, I said, you know, they're going to be selling these things in blister packs at Walmart here in a few years. Yeah. They won't need this. Guess what happened? They sell them in blister packs at Walmart. I bought my. I have an Apple iPhone. I bought it directly from Apple. Sure. They shipped it to my house. Now, to get it set up on for cell service, I had to do a little tech work. I had to make some phone calls. I had to punch in some numbers and all this kind of stuff, and I got it going. Uh, most people probably don't want to do that, don't know how to do that. It's a whole lot easier than it used it's, to be, though. It's a whole lot easier, but... Most people go to sure. They want to. They want that the personal store, touch. The 18th, whatever store it may be, and that's where they they get their phone. I completely agree with you on that. But if you were and, to tell it, me you can't buy that phone from directly from Apple, what? No, that's illegal. You can't do that. And that's what's happening here. So everybody has a, a, a different. I'm for multiple routes to market. I'm for no limits on that. I think we all benefit. Because it eventually lowers costs. Yeah, and innovation. It, yes. it drives innovation. It, it, it increases the customer experience, improves it, because everybody's having to compete with all these other routes, and they get real creative and real innovative. What, all the various modes do. What, what was the cost of a regular home PC, say, 1990? There were no home PCs in 1990. When the home you PC know why? First. Because there wasn't any connectivity. All you could do was spreadsheets and word processing on a PC that wasn't connected to anything. Yeah. But but uh, when I started in business in 1986, a uh, an IBM AT, which was a 286 processor, which is three notches down from where we are today, just the machine without a monitor was $5,295 in those do- with those. a 20-megabyte hard disk, <laughs> which was about this big. 
<laughs> Plus, you had to buy a monitor, a green monochrome monitor for 350 bucks on top of that. Indeed. Unbelievable. Coming right back with Foghat bumping us out of this segment. We're in the Element Well Studios on this Friday Eve. Started today. Morning fans. It's time for Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. Bumping us into this segment here on Middays, we are in the Element Well Studios. And later on, we got some Doobie Brother tickets to give away. We've got Representative Jansen Owen coming in on the program. Philip in Walthall County says there is no state income tax on purse pensions. Right, Philip, that's uh, said that that there. Uh, that's one of the issues in trying to uh, eliminate income taxes. There's so many people. To whom that wouldn't benefit. Uh, benefit, right? Uh, the retired folks in Mississippi. Well, not all retired people, but retirement income. It's really not retired people. It's retirement income. I think after a certain age, as I recall, is exempt from state income tax. So, right, PERS is considered uh, retirement income. So is Social Security income, income from 401k plans, private pensions, etc are all exempt from a state income tax. It's absolutely true. And uh, However, if your income as, uh, let's say you're retired and your income is derived from non-traditional retirement sources, of course that is subject to state income tax. Capital gains, interest, dividends, passive income, etc. Just want to clarify that. The Stephen the Delta says there were there was connectivity in the form of dial-up to bulletin board systems in the '90s. I started computer repairs and teaching about computers in the '80s. Yeah, that's true, uh, Steve. But 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 point is, there weren't any computers that were that were designated and configured as so-called home PCs like there are today. Yeah. If you look at, for example. Uh, HP, Dell, the major manufacturers, Lenovo, of personal computers and laptops, they've got different lines. They've got lines of what they would deem as home-type systems and lines that they would deem as business-type systems. That's the only point I'm trying to make. And you didn't have pervasive, inexpensive, persistent connectivity such as what is available today. It is true. You could dial up. I used to do it. You're right, Steve. Uh, bulletin board systems, uh, America Online, you know, yeah. was something that 
I certainly used quite a bit long before we had the internet and social media, and there was chat rooms and message yeah. boards and so forth. Our, so our, all that was true. Yeah. Our point was was that the competition bred innovation and yes, a lot of <laughs> reduced prices. Are yeah. You gave the example of a five thousand dollar. That's what it was for fifty two ninety five for an IBM PCAT a two eighty six processor with a twenty meg hard drive. What year was that? Uh, nineteen eighty seven eight, and that that was five thousand dollars in nineteen eighty seven. Five thousand two hundred. I still remember five thousand two hundred ninety five dollars wow. plus a monitor, which would set you back three hundred. But for a monochrome monitor, there was no uh, VGA type monitor. No, none of these really flashy, super high res, high no. quality monitors we have today. You could get what was called a color graphics monitor that had sixteen colors and uh <laughs> in pixelized form, very uh very low resolution. Yeah. And you ha- you had to buy the monitor and a special circuit board. I think the circuit board was eight hundred bucks, as I recall. Now of course that circuitry is embedded on the system board of any modern personal computer, laptop, et cetera, and you just plug it in with a USB and port, the and boom, there's your monitor. So, yeah, it, it's a function of just unbelievable innovation. And a tribute to what the left won't admit is capitalism. I know they, they're they mad because a lot of people got really rich creating all those things that we all use mm-hmm. that makes us all more productive. I just start thinking about just how much all all of this technology has improved productivity and you know something that hit me yesterday I bought something from a retailer out of state and and I had um, inadvertently duplicated the order okay so I had to return it as a duplicate and it's pretty simple you go to the app for this retailer and select the item you ordered and say I want to return it and it's, you know, a couple of clicks later, you got an email with a QR code in it for FedEx. Yeah. So I took it to FedEx, they scan the QR code, it prints the label, and off it goes. And then I get notifications while it's on its way back. It's unbelievable. Incredibly productive. Uh, I, I remember, I don't know how many people do, when FedEx introduced what they called Zap Mail. You don't remember that? No. You're too young. You'd have to go, it was the precursor to the modern facts. You could take documents down to a local FedEx store, and they actually had fax systems that would go from one FedEx store to another. They weren't called faxes back then. They weren't facsimiles. It was just a, a network they had built where they could scan a document and transmit it to another FedEx store, and the recipient would go to the FedEx store there to pick the document up. Wow. Zap mail. That's what it was called. I did it. Used to go to the, the only store we had in Mississippi, not Mississippi, certainly central Mississippi. It's downtown Jackson, uh, uh, not far on Capitol Street, uh, not far from the, um, oh, shoot, uh, Town Creek Plaza, I think is what it's called down there, Lamar Street on that corner, that, that area. And used to go down there with documents, and they'd zap them. And it cost a lot of money, by the way. And it would get sent, and a couple hours later, it'd show up at, wherever the other FedEx location was, near the recipient's address, and they'd go pick it up. Now, imagine if you had some law that was passed that said, you know what, we got to protect these FedEx stores, or whatever they are, 
so we can always have this zap system set up, what would the innovation be on that? Right. It would never innovate. It would never change. Yeah, exactly right. So Thomas sent me a, a photo of a Lucent, uh, some sort of Lucent device. Oh, it's a packet switch. And so, yeah, there was a time where we had what's called ISDN. I had that at my house in the early going, and it was uh, it was a switch. It wasn't persistent digital data networking. It was switched. Thomas, I actually had a problem with one we installed for a customer. I'll tell you who it was. It was Corning, the folks that make glass. They have a big operation in Memphis. So now it's no big deal. You install routers right in your location and you buy a persistent internet connection from a from a carrier such as C Spire that we have here. It's persistent meaning it's always working, always up. You don't have to switch to it. The reason you used to have to switch to it is because back in those days you paid by the usage. It wasn't a persist a flat fee for persistent use. You paid by usage. So you switched it on when you needed it and you switched it off when you didn't. That's how you connected to the Internet, or sometimes you connected even privately. Well, we installed this technology, ISDN switching, with uh, the Corning folks. And get this, well, it switched on. This was in the 90s. It switched on as part of their normal routine. They sent data to headquarters, switched off. There was a bug in Cisco software. Didn't switch off. They get their bill from Bell South at the time. The next month, you ready for this? Thirty-two thousand. <laughs> oh God! They sent it to me. You got to pay for this. What do you mean? I got to pay for it? I had to escalate it to Cisco. Took about six months. They finally found a bug. Their fault. They credited. This is crazy. They credited AT and T, which was who they dealt with directly at the time. Who then credited Corning in Memphis? I swear that's how it worked. And in the meantime, they had lawyers telling me, you got to pay for this $32,000 problem we got here. <laughs> yeah. So all to say, look how far it's gone. Imagine using $32,000 in a month of, of data transmission bandwidth. You couldn't today. I mean, my data center, which had gigantic pipes, multi-gigabits of pipes, multiple of them, it, it was... I don't know, twenty-five grand a month or something. That was five years ago. But that was we're servicing fifty thousand people with that bandwidth, with plenty to spare. That's just how far all that's come. And guess what? All without government stupid net neutrality rules, right? Because that's what the left told us: we got to have this, or the price uh, is going to. Uh. No, in fact, the price has gone down dramatically, exponentially. Net and neutrality is going to be the death of us all. Yeah, and I don't even. I, I still don't quite understand all that stuff, but the point is, is that get kind of government out of the way. You do need some regulation exactly. here and there, but you got to have them out of the way to innovate. Right. So we got pervasive bandwidth. It's way cheaper than it's ever been. All without government. All without government dictating um, how carriers have to allocate their bandwidth, which is essentially what net neutrality does. We got to talk about this ESG bill that uh, passed the Senate's headed to Joe Biden's desk. I'll give you some details on that, on what I think Joe is going to do. And you know the other thing? Remember the CHIPS Act? Remember that? The big giant, here's welfare for big chip manufacturers. 
18 Republicans supported it. You won't believe what strings attached there are to receive that money when we come back in the Element Well Studios. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. All right, we are back on Super Talk Mississippi. Back in the Element Well Studios, and very sorry to report that House Bill 401, the bill that would restrict the way consumers in the state of Mississippi can purchase a motor vehicle, a new motor vehicle, has passed the Senate and is headed to the governor's desk. What will he do? I don't know, honestly. Um, ben and Madison had a comment about it earlier. I'm looking for it here. Um, Will, but, but yeah, here we go. Passes. Now Governor Reeves is our only hope to stop this horrific policy. In my opinion, it would be the most popular veto as governor, and it wouldn't be close. I tend to agree, and, and I think, Will, what this really boils down to is we people just don't like the government dictating things like us to it. You can argue about the merits and the problems of this policy, the concerns, the liabilities, the, perhaps the negative consequences versus the positive, till the cows come home, as they say. But in general, people just don't like to be told where they got to buy something. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. That's, that's what's at the heart of this. Don't tell me. I can protect myself in this in, in this transaction. I don't need you for that. Yeah. That that's my concern. So what's next? What industry's next? You know, I don't know. What industry do you think would be next? Uh something technical? Well technology? I mean as I've said before, <laughs> I I functioned in a world where the the route to market's what kept me up at night. I, you couldn't figure it out. You, you, well, it's not that you couldn't. You're just worried about, what about this? What about that? And then think think about just how adoption of cloud computing has just changed that whole dynamic. I saw this coming. And well, i, I got to tell you, when I went to Wall Street back in 2008, that's what they all said. The cloud's going to put you out of business. I couldn't make them understand. No, we benefit from that. We, we will thrive in with cloud adoption. Cloud, they're going to put you out of business. They don't need all that stuff you sell. No. Have you seen the financial statements of all these companies that make that stuff? They're doing fantastic. It drives more of what we need because we figured out our role in that ecosystem and our value proposition, and we thrived at it. Yeah. Finally, Wall Street came around and said, yeah, I guess you're right about that. I think the next industry to be hit by this is probably shoes footwear because you got to try those on before you buy them <laughs> got to buy them from a dealer you know what if they're too tight that's a, that's a, that's that's an issue what if they're too loose gerard oh my you got to go through a a franchise you can't buy those directly off the internet or directly from a manufacturer because you might hurt yourself 
Yeah, I just. <laughs> I um, mean, that's the logic, right? I, 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 I would honestly like to talk to some folks, and I'm sure we'll have them on the program that did vote in support of this legislation. And I, I would like to hear their their rationale for voting in support of it. I, you know, I've called this con for cars, right? So the same people that I know, many of whom in the legislature would like to see repeal of the Certificate of Need laws in Mississippi to encourage competition, access to health care, uh, expansion of the availability of health care, more clinics, for example, more services, perhaps more efficiently run hospitals. Yeah, they may actually put the least efficient out of business. Okay, that's the way it works. That's good for everybody when that happens. Competition breeds efficiency and agility and innovation. So if you want to repeal con, but you're happy to support bills that restrict competition in the sale of cars, I don't see how those two can reconcile, those two positions can reconcile. So I'm calling this con for cars. That's what it is. Please, government, can I sell a car in your state? No different than having to submit a, a big old fancy plan, strategy, proving need for medical services to get the Department of Health to say, okay, you can do that. You can open up. You can buy an MRI machine, etc. Same thing. In the meantime, you got the federal government. I said I'd get to this with this ESG stuff. You guys know what that is, environmental, social governance. So this bill passed the House. The bill essentially uh, prohibits, this bill prohibits investors and invested wealth managers from investing on the basis of ESG, but rather requires them to serve as a fiduciary, which is what they're supposed to do, and seek the best return for their clients. It's passed the Senate now with some Democrats joining Republicans in voting for it. It's headed to Joe Biden's desk. He says he's going to veto it. He wants to tell you how to invest your money. It just woo, it makes me so mad. Coming right back with Representative Jansen Owen. Stay with us. And now, and now, another hour of the talk that keeps Mississippi talking. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Begin your transition now. Now on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Hour three of Middays, live from the Element Well Studios. Don't forget, later on, we've got some uh, Doobie Brothers tickets to give away. 
We are rocking into Hour 3 with Representative Jansen Owen. He represents District 106, which includes Lamar and Pearl River counties. Thanks for coming in there, Representative Owen. Thank you for having me, Gerard. I appreciate it. So we were just discussing off the air that HB 401, that is the bill that would uh, restrict the sale of new vehicles in the state of Mississippi to only outlets located in the state that are independently owned and operated. They could could not be sold directly by a manufacturer into the state or through a manufacturer-owned dealership located in the state. I believe you voted against this legislation in the House. I did vote against it. Um, I voted against it this year. I voted against it last year when it first came up. You would think that a state ran by Republicans would not be passing legislation that um, infuses protectionism into the market, but here we are. Um, I'm disappointed mostly because I think that's going to end up costing the consumer. Just like you said earlier on your program, not only does um, competition breed innovation, it also breeds lower prices. Right. Um, and it protects the consumer. And unfortunately, you know, I guess they think electric cars should be treated differently. I'm of the opinion that everybody should have the opportunity to buy whatever car they want to. Through a, whatever route they want exactly. to. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, there's no secret that uh, some major companies have announced their intention to begin producing electric vehicles. Apple, the world's most valuable company, I think they probably got enough resources to get that done. Uh, don't know how successful they'll be at it, but you know, uh, I like the fact that they're entering the market. They just—it's just more choices and more innovation. They're going to have to build these things somewhere, Representative mm-hmm. Owen. My guess is, given this legislation, if they've been thinking about Mississippi as the place to locate a factory, they're probably just crossed us off the list. That's exactly right. What message are we sending to these new companies who want to create jobs and build these types of products by passing a measure that's anti? their entire company. Uh, I know we have you know, some locations down in South Mississippi where we've been working on recruiting some good manufacturers into the area, and you know, this is just putting a stop sign at the state line to any potential electric car manufacturer. Nope, you're not welcome in Mississippi. And in fact, um, not sure if you're uh, able to talk about it now, do we not have a new project going on in your patch? We have heard rumors of a new project okay. going on in, in our patch. Okay. Which I think is exciting. That is, yes. And uh, certainly could create uh, a number of uh, high-paying jobs and mm-hmm. and just uh, boost the overall economic uh, activity in the area, of course, right. in the Pine Belt area and for uh, the state overall. So yep. that's a good thing. Yeah, I just um, – I'm disappointed. I think that's a, a, a great way to put it. You and I work with all these folks. We're mm-hmm. friends with them. But it's it's uh, nothing personal. We just disagree on this no, matter. you got to be able to move them – you know, work on work on the pro- next project the next day. You can't be you can't hold it personal into your chest, or you won't ever get anything done up here. To- totally agree. <clears throat> All right, so let's talk about uh, the income tax legislation. As you know, you you um, you communicated with me Friday mm-hmm. uh, after I uh, on the program had announced the names of some folks in the House that apparently expressed concern about legislation which would eliminate the income tax and. I'm not really sure, honestly, where the names came from, but once I saw them out in the public square, I felt like that it was kind of free game at this point. I'm concerned, however, maybe that these names uh, were made public uh, from uh, meetings that are supposed to be private. Mm-hmm. And that would be caucus meetings, which I think the rules say everything that's discussed in there remains here. It's confidential information, and the members are to treat it thusly. So 
so I'm not sure of the source, honestly. Mm-hmm. Don't really care about that. Right. But but you were among those those names, and and you texted me afterwards and mm-hmm. said, I need to let you know that my I'm not standing in the way of eliminating the income tax, but I'm rather more concerned that I, I just haven't had the opportunity to review the legislation. We've not seen it yet. And then I talked to some other members. We had Representative Becky Curry on mm-hmm. the program a couple of days ago, who indicated the same. Mm-hmm. So. Tell us where we stand on that and your thoughts about it. Yeah, that. I mean, of course, the list, you know, I, I disagree with how it was put out there. It, you know, once it is put out on social media, you are more than welcome to, you know, talk about it. That's just, that's that's what happens. Yeah. Um, the first thing is with the list is its inaccuracies. I actually was not on the list. Okay. But I should have been if we were going to talk about if we were just okay. listing people who spoke up. Well, where did I get it, your name it's from? It's uniquely – I don't know if you ever mentioned it. I just – Maybe you know, I did. I, um, the, the people that were listed were simply some people who spoke up and asked questions. And sure. There, there were inaccuracies in the fact that several of those people actually supported the income tax bill in its current form. So I'm not sure. And, then, and you know, I spoke – up in the meeting as well, and I'll only repeat what I said. Okay. Uh, I expressed concerns myself for a good five or six minutes, so it actually surprised me that I was not on the list. Um, the, I believe that you know those meetings that we have in our caucus, we have an oath that we're supposed to keep co- each other's confidences. Right. And the release of the list did betray those confidences in a lot of ways and made a lot of people uncomfortable with being able to openly express their concerns. As far as the income tax is concerned, my, my concerns I expressed, number one, of course, was that there was no bill. And to this day, there is still no bill. We were supposed to have passed the bill out of committee that day within minutes and possibly the floor the same day. Um, and we had not yet seen a bill. So my first concern was, well, this is supposed to be a historic tax reform. Uh, you know, this is supposed to be one of the, the greatest things we could possibly do as legislators in Mississippi, yet we are not able to read it. So that was my first thing. Why did we not get granted the courtesy to read this this legislation prior to be given it? Uh, that's what they do in D.C. That's not what I want us to do here in Mississippi. That was my first issue. Okay. Um, and then, you know, looking at Kansas, I know a lot of people like to, to like to attack plans to repeal the income tax based off of the Kansas model and what they deem to be the failure in Kansas. Um, one of Kansas's issues, if you read about the problem with Kansas, was that they didn't really um, tackle public spending in the way that they should have as they're phasing out the income tax. They just kept spending you know, the same. We're doing even worse than that. Our, our budget and, and state spending is increasing dramatically. Meanwhile, we're wanting to cut the income tax. And my only question was, do we have mechanisms in the bill that would reel in spending to the extent necessary to make sure that we're not going to be put into a budget crisis? Uh, Because I believe that's an important part of the income tax reduction process is you have to be prepared and you have to be willing to reduce public spending, particularly in this situation. And I I don't think there was a a good solid answer on that either. Yeah, so I just want to clarify that I I understand your concerns and Mm -hmm. I think they're perfectly valid and legitimate. And I also believe that a member who represents a district, a constituency, uh, they should not just act on the recommendation or the the uh, the encouragement even of leadership. That's right. Exclusively, That's right. they they are there to to ask questions, to to uh, provide counterthought, perhaps, and other ideas, and to really vet any legislation, especially something as sweeping in this. And while I certainly uh, support it. I also respect the process. That's right. And I believe you were engaged in the process. 
uh, the way you should be as a good representative. So I just want to share that with you. Well, I appreciate it, that. And you know, yeah. I, I, none of those questions were me saying I'm opposed to the bill either. That's the funny thing about it. I, I voted for the income tax repeal. I think two years in a row. I've, I've, you know, I've studied eliminating the income tax. That's something I've wanted to do since I've been elected to office. Is work in that direction. Okay. You know, I just, I just think we need to be able to read it and vet it. So, and, and whatnot. So the Kansas situation, just for the benefit of our audience, is, is one where, as you, as you described, they eliminated uh, the income tax, or they severely reduced mm-hmm. it, as I recall, but they didn't really take any action from a spending perspective. And then they, then they found themselves without sufficient revenue to cover spending commitments that they had made, and they had to go back to the well and bump the taxes back up. Right. We don't want that to happen Never. here. Never do I want to be put in a position where somebody's telling me I've got to – to be quite frank, if we mess it up, I'm not raising the taxes. We're just going to have to figure out where to cut it, as far right. as I'm concerned. Right. So, And also, I think there were some issues in Kansas where they had some unintended – I think they might have closed some loopholes they didn't really intend to, and some small businesses and corporations started taking advantage of some tax loopholes that they didn't really intend, and then that messed up their revenue even, even more. Okay. Is there a structure, a model – uh, if offered today that you could support and get behind? Have you thought about that? Yeah, I think anything that would involve us being able to monitor the spending and bring it down to a level that we're not we're not over overcompensating, I guess. If we can if we can reel in the spending or have a mechanism in place to analyze state spending, where can we cut, where can we move money around, anything along those lines, I think I could you know, I could get behind it absolutely. Okay. It's, it's not going to be a hard sell for me. Okay, fair, fair enough. Glad, glad you were able to come on and, and share that. Uh, we got a break right here. You can hang around with us, can't you? We got Representative Jansen Owen in the Element Well Studios, and we're coming right back. stories that matter most to Mississippians. Gerard Gibbert, Middays with Gerard, Super Talk Mississippi. iconic voice of the late Christine McVie on lead vocals for Fleetwood Mac. Sorely missed. You ever seen the dance? The the um, yeah, it's good, isn't it? It's amazing. It is awesome. They were so good. Well, we're back in the Element Well Studios with Representative Jansen Owen. We have been talking about the measure 
Well, I guess there's not one this year, but the um, proposal, let's put it that That's way. That's a good way to put it. To uh, eliminate the state income tax. It's no secret. I've been a proponent of this, an outspoken proponent of it. Uh, but I also believe it needs to be done in a responsible way, and I, I think you share uh, my sentiments there, as do many members, honestly, of the legislature. Yeah, we're for this. Let's let's get this done, but let's certainly make sure that we do it in, in a prudent and responsible fashion. It's right. all fair enough. Right. That's yeah, it. Absolutely that's all fair anybody's enough. asking for. All fair enough. So hopefully, um, you know, it's not dead dead and we can get something done uh, before the session's out. Uh, I certainly know that the governor sees this as uh, a high priority uh, for the state. And I do think it could uh, serve us well in attracting industry into our state. I really do. When you've got that as a calling card, as a, as a, as a feature benefit of uh, locating a business, expanding a business in the state of Mississippi, bringing workers in here, I think it's a pretty good selling feature. I agree. I mean, I... Nothing's dead until it's dead, 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 dead. Yeah. So, um, yeah. I agree with you. I agree with you on that. Um, supported the bill in the past. I think it's something we probably need to, you know, grow our economy and, and attract new business, new industry, and new people to the state. So, yeah, I think we'll, I think in the future we'll do it. We'll I hope see so. How things work out. I certainly hope so. What uh, What do you think about some of the other legislation? Anything else that uh, comes to mind that? Uh, it's been. It started out as being very active, but gosh, it seems like a lot of bills died in committee. It this seems year. like it's slowing down. Yeah. yeah, I'm interested to see what the House and Senate decide to do with the um, funding formula. I saw where the Senate committed yesterday to fully funding MAEP. I'm interested to see where that's going to go. That's education, folks. Uh, the Mississippi Adequate Education Program, that's I believe, right. is what the acronym stands for. That's right. So-called fully fund is something that. The, it's debatable. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> Whatever that means. There's and it's a reasonably complex formula That's involved right. in that. The way the state provides funding versus the districts, the school districts. That's right. And you know, it, reasonably complex. I think if it's a formula that a, a normal everyday person can't understand, we should probably shouldn't be using it <laughs> to fund government in any way. But that's probably a debate for another day. Yeah. That's a good point. Uh, no, I, I agree. I, I wasn't aware of that. That was on the table this year. Yeah, that was thrown out um, yes, uh, earlier this week. I believe the chairman said that the Senate's position is to fully fund MAEP this year. I, wow. believe, I believe they're going to do it with some tweaks to the formula that might make it easier to fully fund, but that's that's what I believe is floating around right now. So okay. it'll be interesting to see how that rolls. Well, as you well know, there are a lot of, uh, shall we say, uh, public education activists that have been uh, clamoring for this for quite some time. Oh, they have, for sure. They're, that, they're in really the Capitol regularly, yep. right? Yep. So it'll be an interesting day when that happens. Hmm. Uh, yeah. So, wow. Well, we'll keep an eye on that. Um, we just passed, uh, the governor just signed legislation uh, into law that would prohibit uh, certain uh, gender reassignment surgery on minors in the state of Mississippi. We were talking about that earlier on the program. We had Riley Gaines on the program, the All-American champion swimmer that competed in the NCAA swimming competition against a biological male who transitioned to a female, mm -hmm. competes, she ties, and they awarded it. I don't know if you heard her on the program. We're able to do that, but it was a sh shocking story, honestly. I've read about her story before. It's um, fascinating. Recently. It's very interesting. I hate to see something like that happen, you know. Never thought that this would be something we'd have to debate in the legislature. But, Agree. you know, it, that's the world we're in right now. You know, I have sympathy for everybody, everybody who believes different things and whatnot. I do believe, though, that we, we – 
draw a line for children 18 years and under for a reason. You know, I couldn't get my first tattoo until I was 18. I can't drink alcohol unless I'm 21. I can't even vape now, thanks to the legislature, until I'm 21. So, you know, there we, we draw the line for a reason for kids because studies say, science says, that children are not able to make decisions like that. Their brain's not formed enough to make those type of long-term decisions. Yeah. So this really shouldn't be a controversial bill. It shouldn't be controversial to say that if you're a child, you can't permanently change your body like that until you're old enough to do it and make the decision um, on your own. And makes, enough. makes sense. Uh, went through without a lot of controversy. Let's talk about uh, postpartum Medicaid extension. Mm -hmm. Your thoughts on that? Um, well, you know, it's I, I definitely appreciate my colleagues who have supported the, the position that we need to extend um, postpartum extension mm -hmm. I, you know I believe differently I believe that you know as conservatives we we want to move away from growing the size of government more importantly this type of you know welfare type of programs um, I think the goal of uh, of us should be to you know make the market free enough for people to be able to get these services without the government depending on it I'm also very much against um, Medicaid expansion. I don't believe we need to commit to that type of spending in the state, and I believe that this is a step towards full Medicaid expansion. Today, we're talking about you know how Medicaid postpartum Medicaid expansion extension, excuse me, you know increases better outcomes for women who are you know within a year after after birth. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> tomorrow, we'll be talking about how Medicaid coverage, you know. In, in, increases better outcomes for men who have heart disease or women who have heart disease or obesity. So if we're using this argument for one particular subset of people and one particular issue, I believe it's next year we're going to be talking about how we need to do it here and there and here and there. And then we've had a whole piecemeal approach before long. We've we've expanded Medicaid in the state of Mississippi, um, which I believe most people back home, if you talk to them about expanding Medicare or Obamacare, they would be opposed to that. Do you, do you feel, Representative Owen, that the average person in Mississippi truly understands what expansion means, what Medicaid expansion per se means? I think to an extent they do. Um, I, I believe they're smart enough out there, of course, to know that when we're talking about expanding Medicaid, we, may, we mean we're adding more people to the rolls. Okay. Um, the basic level of that. Okay. I don't think you know they. You know, our, my people are working hard every day. They're 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 waking up at four a.m. to drive to New Orleans to work or go to Hattiesburg to, for their nursing shifts or whatnot. They're not thinking about this like we are up here. We're in a fishbowl. It's going to involve, you know, the issue being put in front of them for them to be able to form their opinions. And I think it is split 50-50 as to what people feel whether or not we should increase uh, Medicaid services to, to able-bodied working adults. It's an expensive uh, program mm -hmm. uh, in the state and nationally. It is the second most expensive in the state of Mississippi. It comes in at just about a billion dollars a year of, of annual spending, second only to education. That's right. Uh, the state's portion of Medicaid, the federal uh, investment in Medicaid in the state of Mississippi comes in at just about five billion dollars a year. It's nearly a six billion dollar program combined state and federal money. It's an incredibly expensive and what I would like to see us focus on, and I think you just made that point as well, is that 25 percent of our population is on Medicaid. Mm -hmm. We should be tracking those numbers to bring them down. That That's means right. that we're growing our economy, we're providing more opportunity for our citizens so That's they don't right. need it. That's right. I agree. Um, and that's kind of where, where I say I don't think our goal should be to add more people to the rolls. Our goal should be to do what we can to get people off the rolls. Um, and, you know, to my to my colleagues who disagree with me, and to their credit, 
you know, they say that the federal government's going to carry most of the bill on on this proposal. And, you know, I say to that, well, that would be great if they keep it that way. But as we all know, Congress changes every two years. The presidency changes every four. You know, we don't know what the future holds as far as that funding. And once you create a government program, there's no getting rid of it. So if we create it, it's stuck there, and we got to figure out how to fund it. Yeah. Well, I hear you. I personally don't think that's an issue, and I don't really see that as a, a, a valid objection. I think there are lots of reasons to object. I don't happen to see that one, not with 39 states having, having uh, expanded and with the program having been in place, Medicaid, base Medicaid, since 1965. It stayed pretty constant right. in that respect. What about just re- reducing uh, or changing, amending the Medicaid program in Mississippi to reduce costs, like maybe bringing the federal poverty level income thresholds for the eligibility for the various coverage groups or some of the services that Mississippi provides that are not required by the federal government? I just wonder if we've ever really taken any time to investigate how could we perhaps amend the program a bit to bring costs down but still achieve the overall goal. You know, I haven't thought about that, but that sounds awesome. I mean, I think we need to be creative and and keep working on it, honestly. Can you hang around? Yeah. Yeah, we got Representative Jansen Owen in the Element Well Studios. Gerard Gibbert. It is on. On Super Talk Mississippi. Like a worn out recording of a favorite song. So while she lay there sleeping, I read the paper in bed. And in the personal columns, there was this letter I read. The Pina Colada song. Rupert Holmes. Rupert Holmes. One and only hit. Did and he, he? He hit it out of the park. Yeah, he did with that one, didn't he? I played it because of the, the rain part. Oh, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Are y'all going to serve Pina Coladas? <laughs> yeah, after, after the show's done here in a little bit. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> well, that may be the best statement a member of the legislature's ever made here on the <laughs> I'm clapping for Jansen on that one. That was great. <laughs> Okay, so something else, and, and I'm glad I appreciate you staying with us. Absolutely. Another um, issue that I just wanted to run by and see your thoughts, PERS. It's going broke. Let's just call it what it is. It's, uh, it's not sustainable at its present level. That's it right. ain't going broke next month. I don't want anybody no, to go out no. and say, your checks aren't coming. No, no, no. But it's not sustainable on a long-term basis. You guys know it. PERS knows it. Everybody knows it. Right. Uh, as I have said on the program, you really got three options. You can uh, bring more revenue in. Mm-hmm. You can pay less out or a combination of the three. Or the two uh, is, uh, is uh, selection three is what I should say. ABC. What do we do here? What are you guys talking about? 
Yeah, that's going to be hard. I mean, every decision, every bill that's come up that's had to do with revenue, I believe PERS has been right there on the forefront as we've got to think about this if we're going to do this. I'll give you an example, the income tax debate sure. that we talked about. There were several concerns. You know, we've got this cliff with PERS coming. We're supposed to be cutting spending if we're going to eliminate the income tax, and how are we going to spend $200, 300000000 million of short PERS in the future if we're doing this? So, I mean, it, I haven't really heard any concrete proposals yet. From what I understand, PERS is committed to um, coming up with a, a, a proposal or a plan um, and presenting it to the legislature during the off season in order for us to work on something next session. So uh, they're the experts. I think we're kind of just posturing ourselves to wait to see what they're going to present and then um, move forward from I there. I think that's the prudent approach, honestly. It, it's, um, it's complicated, uh, as so many things are, but really unless one – kind of immerses themselves in, in pension fund systems, uh, it's really hard to, to make a call from a legislative perspective. But And I am not one of those people that they immerses themselves in pension funds. <laughs> I understand. Um, it's, it's one of those things, though, that the, that the state, the legislature, is ultimately responsible for. I mean, right. it's under the purview of the, of the legislature. And then there's a board as you well know, that mm-hmm. uh, provides oversight That's right. uh, to PERS. They have the ability, does the board, to increase the employer mm-hmm. contribution. That would be public sector entities that, that hire uh, and maintain staffs of, of public sector workers. The legislature, on the other hand, uh, must enact a measure that would increase the employee's contribution. That's right. That's the way it works. And so I don't know where that's going, but uh, I'm hoping that gets addressed in some right. form or fashion. And I know there was a lot of controversy. You know, PERS put out a statement that they intended to um, increase the employer contribution rate effective October 1st, which right. caused a lot of stress and anxiety amongst our cities and towns, our colleges, our schools, because of the amount. I think they were going from 17.2 to 22.2%. Five percent. Five percent, yeah. Yep. Um, so, so that caused a lot of you know consternation among throughout the state as far as what that's going to do to our budget um, and our local budgets. Yeah. Um, there was a bill floating around that would have you know kind of pivoted that. From what I understand, PERS has agreed not to do that right now. Wait a minute. Um, I believe the story is, and I'm just repeating what I've been told during the debate over this piece of legislation is, you know, they hired a. Um, I guess an advisor or a consultant to give some recommendations as to what they need to do to help shore up the yep. program. That that uh, person advised to do small incremental raises over a period of time. Well, um, PERS decided to go with one large raise in one particular time, which, which which is a problem for our local governments. Luckily, they've agreed to hold off on that, present a plan to the legislature, let us work that out. Um, I think they've put that off until July of next year as far as That's increasing right. the contribution. That's right. So I think it was supposed to go into effect in October, right. and I think they uh, delayed it. So I think everybody's until, on the same page now, kind of like, let's work together, figure out what we can do, present a plan, and then we can move forward from there, which okay. is where we need to be. Okay. Fair, fair enough. It's just something that doesn't seem to get a lot of attention, but uh, I think what you're saying is, yeah, every time we talk about revenue measures and so forth, the, the right. subject of PERS comes mm-hmm. up as well it should. Every retired teacher that I've talked to, a retired county employee, the first thing they ask me is, what are you doing to PERS? What's going on with PERS? Sure. Am I going to keep my 13th check? All of that. So it's important to a large segment. I mean, when that bill was when that bill was going through, I don't think I've had that many calls since the flag vote. Wow. So. Well, the challenge, as you well know, Representative Owen, is that 
uh, as a conservative, you want to trim the size of government, mm-hmm. but when you trim the size of government, you're really talking about cutting headcount. That's right. And when you cut headcount, you're cutting money coming in to fund the benefits of those who are receiving it. It's a conundrum. That's right. That's right. That's when that you're working on a program that was established many, many years ago, and you got to figure out how we can balance it. Yeah. So that's, that's a unique conundrum. Yeah, I totally agree. What do you think about... Uh, the elections coming up this year. Do you have an opponent? I do not have an opponent. Well, congratulations. Thank you. Awesome. I've won my election, thankfully. So. <laughs> that's uh, that's awesome. Uh, several did draw some uh, opponents. Several incumbents did on they both did. sides, mm-hmm. and uh, those are interesting to watch. We got a very interesting race uh, races at the top of the ticket for both governor and lieutenant governor. Certainly on the that's right on the governor's side. I think more focus on the general election mm-hmm. with uh, Democrat Public Service Commissioner Brandon Presley. I think that race is going to be interesting to watch. Um, I think you know there's going to I think the Democrats are trying to you know I think it's going to be an opportunity for the national Democrats to gauge where people are going into the presidential election year. So I think we're going to see a lot of. A lot of TV ads, a lot of mailers, and I'm interested to see where Mississippi falls on on that race. Yeah, I agree. What what do you think, and what do you hear from your constituents as what would uh, cause them to vote one way or another? What are their priorities? What are they saying is is good and needs some or needs some work? My constituents are extremely conservative, so that right now they're talking about mostly what's going on in D.C. and yeah. and, and Joe Biden. So they're going to want somebody who is going to protect them from from those guys up there in D.C. So I'm with them. That's where they'll probably be fixated on. Um, and then after that, they do talk about their retirement a lot. They talk about the cost of groceries, going to the grocery store, how much it costs to get a gallon of milk now. Um, so I think that's what they're going to be thinking about. Who's going to give me – who's going to cut my taxes so where I don't have to spend so much or, you know, to where the government's not taking my money? Who's going to help the co- – you know, impact the cost of my groceries or my medicine? And um, who's going to protect me from Joe Biden's America? Representative Becky Curry on the program a couple of days ago, I point blank asked her what she thought would happen with a measure that would eliminate the sales tax on groceries. She said, I'm paraphrasing a bit here, I think it would pass this afternoon. What, what I do agree. you think? I agree. I actually authored a bill to do that this session. Um, I, I think it would pass. You know, maybe a year ago the priority could have been among the people on the income tax, but in light of how much it costs people to buy st- simple stuff like groceries, I could totally see the wide-range support from our constituents as hmm. just eliminating the, the grocery tax. And, of course, with the cost of groceries going up, it's double whammy because the tax is levied on the cost of those groceries. Exactly. So you're you're experiencing the, the higher price exactly. of the goods you're buying, plus you're experiencing higher sales taxes. And from probably. what I understand, and you can correct me, you probably know, I believe most states actually don't tax groceries. There are very, very few that – I think 11 have some right. form of grocery tax right. remaining when I looked it up the other day. Uh, but of course, they ha- they have other uh, models in right, place right. and other sources of revenue as well. Car tags is something else I hear mm-hmm. a lot about. What about you? Yeah, I mean, the car tax is probably second to the grocery tax. The cost of it is the car tax. People don't usually understand this, but that's local taxes. So if we cut your car tags, we're going to be having to take state money, counties to send mostly, to the county, yeah, to, counties, yeah, right, to send to the county to make them whole. So that's more spending same with the on grocery the state tax. Side. Same to the grocery tax. Um, that's more of a city thing there. So yeah, it, it's a whole system. You take it from one end. We're going to have to make them whole. Or make them cut. Yeah, we never do that. Right. So well, that, okay. So that's my my next question that I want to get to before you're out of here is, what can we cut? I mean, there just doesn't seem to be a lot of discussion about that. I know there's not. 
I have some ideas. I won't say it on the okay. air. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right, let's start with this. We only got a couple of minutes left. Education receives mm-hmm. the most of our general fund spending, right. uh, 52 3% of it. Surely there's something we can do there. To I know we just increased teacher pay, which I think was appropriate, honestly. So yeah, we just yeah. we boosted we our our spending in education. But surely there's some other things to do. I hear a lot about perhaps we ought to consolidate mm-hmm. some school districts. Yeah, I, I yeah I agree. Um, administration cost is pretty high up there. I'll give you an example of something I heard a couple of weeks ago. Um, there's there was a program that was given to the district, a particular district, to um, do online tutoring, okay. basically, um, and it, I think it cost up to a million dollars or something. This particular program, well, during an audit, turns out, whoop, there's never been even been a login issue to a single student. We just paid for it; hasn't been used. So there needs to be a way for us to go through accountability, you know, transparency. Are we spending the money that you've been appropriated correctly? Are, you know. Are, are we using stuff or doing stuff that we shouldn't be spending money on? I'm so glad to hear you talk about that, Representative Owen. I strongly encourage you and your colleagues to take that up as a, as a major effort. Maybe too late in this session, session but One after day. the session, let's do it. That's appreciate right. you coming Thank on. Thank you, man. I appreciate yep. you. Thank you. Coming right back, final segment on Midday. Days with Gerard. Good for America. Good for fans of justice and truth. Good for us. Super Talk Mississippi. This is what we stand for. Give them Doobie Brothers tickets away as we enjoy long train running. That's right. One of the best-selling groups of all time, the Doobie Brothers, will be at the Brandon Amphitheater in Brandon on Saturday, August 26th. Tickets go on sale tomorrow at Ticketmaster.com and the Brandon Amphitheater box office. But you can actually purchase tickets right now early if you use the code TRAIN. Go to Ticketmaster.com and just search for Doobie Brothers and Brandon Amphitheater. But now we're going to give you a chance to win a pair of tickets to see them before you can buy them. Be the fifth person to text into the C Spire text line 601-879-4395 with this key phrase to win a pair of tickets. The key phrase you need to text is... Long Train Running. We made it very difficult for you today. We played the song. So there you go. Fifth person to text me, long train running on the C Spire text line, 601-879-4395. You will win a pair of tickets to see the Doobie Brothers on their 50th anniversary tour, by the way. 50 years. And that makes you feel old, doesn't it? Yes, it does. (laughs) Because I remember uh, riding around town in my... uh, my friend's Cutlass Supreme, like 1972 model with a vinyl roof and a little portal window in the back, listening to uh, the 8-track of the oh, Doobie Brothers. the 8-track of it. In the middle of it, we'd go, you know, it'd do that thing that it did. Well, I found that it wasn't aligned very well on the head, so you you would miss uh, some of the, the higher ranges, tone, tones, yeah. <laughs> and I'd have to kind of like wedge like a piece of cardboard <laughs> in there so it would line on the heads. 
They're oh, amazing. Yeah. All right, we have a winner, so I'll I'll get that together, but we do have a winner. So awesome. there you go. Moe says, what's next? They're going to try to run Amazon out of Mississippi? Said the same thing, Moe. The MAEP formula is flawed. It assumes automatic increases without regard to the state's financial health. We'll see where that goes, the MAEP formula. Uh, I didn't realize till Representative Owen informed us or, uh, in the last segment, I guess, that they're taking up uh, a bill which would fully fund education in accordance with the MAEP formula. Thompson Greenwood says, we need four to six districts maximum. And that means we would bring our current districts, we would eliminate, what, Thomas, 115 or so districts? 115. So we would have four or six districts maximum in Thomas's plan. That could be, we could divide it like we do the, the uh, Supreme Court districts, right? We just have a northern, a central, and a southern. And Thomas assumes that means that one, the equivalent of one district office now that handles a group of schools could handle an entire gamut of counties in the districts in those schools, and and that that would um, cut those costs. I disagree with Thomas on that totally, uh, but I'm just sharing what I believe is uh, his sentiments on that. I'd love to see all the state agencies work over the course of a few years to consolidate across the board, says Ben from Madison. Don't know how much it will save, but we have way too many agencies as well as too much red tape. Wow. Johnny in West Point says, cut out the 13th check. That'll help some man. By the way, that's Johnny's idea, not mine. Not ours. Yeah. Not endorsed by you us. Talk nope, about, nope, nope. You talk about create a firestorm man. Now, does it cost a whole bunch of money? Absolutely. But it's like Representative Owen said. So much of this is just legacy entrenched policy. And it's just it's hard to turn it around. That's why I think the concerns about, well, we shouldn't expand Medicaid because the federal government may may acquiesce on its its present ninety percent level of funding. There are a lot of reasons to oppose Medicaid expansion. I don't think that's one of them, honestly. Seriously, a federal program uh, being reduced or being eliminated like that for health care impossible ain't gonna happen. I mean, if that were the case, then why is Medicaid? grown and still being sustained by the federal government's uh, FMAP plan now since 1965. So there are are reasons to oppose it. That's not one of them. And there are 39 states, by the way, which have. They're not going to tell those 39 states, sorry, you're on your own now. It's not going to happen. William and Brandon, I'm six years from retirement, and I'm quite nervous about my PERS. Something needs to be done soon to ease many minds. Like I said, William, I hear you, William, and I, I man, I appreciate your concern, and you, you should uh, be paid. You should receive the benefits that the state agreed to pay you when you signed into PERS. I totally agree that the state's got to meet its obligations in, in that respect. That would Anything less than that is just not right, not fair. Breach of contract. How do you do it? How do you, uh, how do you fix it financially? That's a, a deep and wide discussion. I apologize I didn't get today to the um, discussion I wanted to have about the CHIPS Act. I'm going to save it for tomorrow, 
But what the federal government, and this is a situation where, Will, it gets enacted at the, in the congressional level, signed by the president, gets pushed down to the agencies, and now they dream up all these silly requirements that these companies are going to have to adhere to in order to receive federal government money. i give you a hint. I don't think anybody's going to take them up on it. That's how egregious these requirements are. Saving that until tomorrow. Thanks so much for joining us today. Back with you in the Element Well Studios on Friday. Until then, stay safe and God bless everyone. A Super Talk Mississippi media production.